So how do we address these issues in a way that honors everybody involved in this conversation instead of just fighting for our own corner of it and saying, we're right, you know, this is what it should be. You don't have any good points about this at all because you don't read the Bible correctly. I mean, you can't, I, I, I think that's the hardest thing in the church is like the interpretation of Romans 13 and how to do that in a way that would make sense so that we aren't being so, like I said, literal and in terms of like how to make it more of a holistic. Welcome to another episode of the Vineyard Justice Network podcast. Vineyard Justice Network exists to empower vineyard pastors and leaders to pursue and enact the justice of God's kingdom. VJN equips you by connecting the work of heart, head, and hands with key issues of structural injustice and leadership. In this episode, Kathy Maskell sits down with Janine Winfrey, Director of Immigration Counseling Services at Vineyard Community Center in Columbus, Ohio. Janine shared her own immigration story from Vietnam to the United States and how her lived experience fuels her work representing DACA clients and people seeking asylum in the U.S. Welcome, Janine. Thank you, Kathy. I'm very glad to be here. We're going to get into, you know, big picture and then just like even the micro, like what, what is your actual day like? But before we get into the particular, why don't you just share your story, you know, like why are you an immigration lawyer? How, how does that connect to following God in your life and just, yeah, your story? My story starts out in Vietnam. So I was born in Hue, Vietnam, which is the central part of Vietnam, to sort of like a royal family, I guess you would say. We're the descendants of the brother of the king. So my grandfather actually was pretty high up in the government. When South Vietnam fell, he was actually like the third in line. So the two leaders ahead of him had abdicated and abandoned the country. And so he was the one that actually signed over South Vietnam to North Vietnam during the communist takeover. So yeah, so that sort of is my heritage. And then my dad, at the time of that, that happened in April 75, was studying abroad. So my dad was overseas at the time of the fall of Saigon. And so I was about two years old, and he was trying to come back from a medical fellowship in the University of Oklahoma. But then he was stuck outside because Vietnam was blockaded. There was no re-entry for anyone who had studied overseas, especially in the U.S. And so he and my mom and and, um, my brother and I, we were all separated for about seven years. Finally, was able to sponsor us through the orderly departure program, which reunited Vietnamese families together after the war. So I came to the U.S. at the age of seven, which I think is interesting for my story because I work a lot with DACA kids. And so I really relate to that, the idea of like being brought over to another country that you don't know any other country, you know, this is what you call home. And so when I have clients who are similar, I think for me, it really reminds me of how vulnerable and innocent a a seven-year-old is, you know, coming over to a new country and how we could not possibly blame them for an action like that. And, you know, that they would have any intent to cross a border or there's just no culpability there in my mind. So that's sort of how I became 
an American. I came over and then we became citizens when I was about, like I came through my mom's citizenship. So I didn't have to pass a citizenship test. I was just brought under derivative citizenship with my mom when she took naturalization tests. I got through the culture shock of like being in this country and then went through uh, undergrad at UVA and then law school at Georgetown. But then I, I definitely felt a struggle and I'm not sure it was like an identity struggle, but it made me feel like I was missing something. And I think through a lot of personal struggle with a sense of not understanding who God is because we came from a Buddhist background. I think I really went through just a lot of alienation through several years where I just felt like even though I was a lawyer and I was working at this immigration nonprofit in D.C., I didn't feel satisfied with the way that I was, you know, um, doing my work. And I felt maybe like I didn't have a voice. I didn't couldn't find my voice. That led me to actually leave D.C. and I entered the military and I became a JAG in the military. And that's where I became a Christian. So I was witnessed to by a lot of very strong Christians to just invited me to Bible studies and church. And I had a family that made me come to their small group every week. And I didn't know what I was talking about. Like, I was like, what is this exodus and all these minor prophets? And I couldn't understand a word that anyone was saying. But for some reason, because they just kept inviting me, I just kept, I needed a meal maybe. And so I would come over and we would do Bible study. So that's sort of like how I came to Christ. And then I met my husband in the military. And so we got married and we had two kids and we moved around with the Air Force for 14 years. And then finally we said, the kids need like a stable home. They need not to be moving so much. And so we ended up in Columbus, Ohio, which is the midpoint between our two families. He came from a very strong Christian faith. And then, um, and so we're bringing the kids up in Christian school. Um, yeah, we love the vineyard here. And it's been a really good community for us to, to grow. And, and I feel like God just put all the pieces together for me. And that's how I came here. And then as far as getting into the job, I had been a stay-at-home mom for 10 years during the time that we were in the Air Force. And then when the election of 2016, I think we all felt like there was just this common or communal trauma that happened and everyone wanted to do something about it. And so for me, it was more like, I just want to help with the background that I have in which I felt, well, immigration law is a pretty good background for this moment. And so I ended up volunteering at Vineyard Community Center. And then six months later, as it were, the, the job opened up for um, the director position here at Immigration Counseling Services. And then after praying about it, I felt like maybe I can take a leap of faith and, and accept the position. I think for me, at first, I just felt like I'm not ready for that. I, I, I have no experience for the past 15 years, but for some reason it all kind of worked out and I've really drawn from the background of having gone through work with an immigration firm basically back in you know the days when I was in DC. So I think that gave me the confidence that maybe God knew what he was doing, even though I didn't. So yeah. here I am. <laughs> Listening to some of your story, the way that you highlight a few of these experiences, you know, coming from a royal family and then practicing immigration law, practicing law in the U.S. Air Force, you say it matter-of-factly, but these are pretty incredible accomplishments, <laughs> as well as just very dramatic. I mean, you couldn't control coming from a royal family, but I yeah. imagine that has left a pretty strong impression on you in terms of your own sense of identity. And then how might God call you in that very story and your origin story with your own immigration experience? Like you mentioned feeling a natural connection with DACA. 
recipients. Just for folks who don't necessarily know what DACA is, say more about what that is and how your work today connects with that. Right. So, um, so DACA is a 2012 immigration benefits program that was enacted through the executive order of President Barack Obama. At the time, the full name is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, and the program allowed for children who had been in the country, who had been brought over without documents by their parents, and they were qualified as being under the age of, I believe it's 16, and they are basically allowed to have something called prosecutorial discretion, which means that they're not going to be enforced. Even though they're not here legally, the government says, we're just going to give you grace because you were brought over through no fault of your own, through no culpability, no criminal intent that you happen to have come here. And this is the only place that you know. This is your only country in your mind because you came over at such a young age. The people who qualified, they're called DREAMers um, based on a legislative bill by Senator Durbin that was really the precursor to DACA. So the DREAM Act was trying to get full paths of citizenship for these DREAMers who are this group of kids who really are people who are very hardworking, who go to school, who have potential, and we want to encourage stability for these individuals. And so because the DREAM Act never got past, DACA was sort of like at least an action that could be taken to help secure the, if, if not a full legal status, at least something that would allow the, them to get a work permit. So that's what a, a DACA recipient has, two years of status that is temporary in order to work under a legal work permit. And they have like a restricted social security card. And every two years, if they don't have any other things that would cause them to fall out, out of eligibility, then they can, can continue to renew their work permit every two years and basically try to lead a stable life that way, even though there is no path to citizenship at this time. So why would a community center mm -hmm. that's connected to a church decide that serving and helping to represent someone who has DACA status, for example, mm -hmm. how is this connected to biblical justice? Okay. Um, what I would articulate is based on our value statement, which I believe our senior pastor, Rich Nathan, would agree with me that those are, one, to promote family unity, two mm -hmm. would be to serve the marginalized, and three would be to fight injustice. So I would expand that promoting family unity is basically saying that immigration is a family issue. It's not about politics. Husbands are separated from their wives. Children are separated from their parents. Parents have been rounded up and deported while their children were attending preschool. As a church, we have to fight to keep the families together and to reunify families, especially when they're minor children who are being separated from their parents. This is just a moral issue where we're just called to love our neighbors, no matter what their status, because they're here and they're our neighbors. So that's number one. Secondly, serving the marginalized. I have um, Deuteronomy 10.18 written here. It says, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigners residing among you, giving them food and clothing. So this idea of the least of these and how we as a community of believers and followers of Jesus, we have to see that these are the least of these. The vulnerable groups in our midst, the stranger in our midst, are the ones who are undocumented, who are aliens who need our care and our mercy and provision. 
So we, we believe that that's part of our call is to go out and serve the least of these. And so that's number two. And then three, a little bit more tricky is the fighting injustice because we are a church that supports the rule of law. And so there are times when laws are questionable. I think that the idea of what is an unjust law, I would not know how to, you know, I'm not a theologian and I'm not like a legal scholar, but I would think that in all of us, we would hope that the Holy Spirit would allow us to discern what laws need to be examined through the lens of biblical justice and need to be changed proactively through advocacy for immigration reform. So I have this Bible verse, Malachi 3.5, a God-fearing moral society is one that does not brush aside foreigners or deprive them of justice. And for me, that's what we have to always remember is that it's God's fight, not ours. And I think that when we are not the ones who who decide what is just and what's unjust, what is right and what is wrong, it's in God's laws. And so we have to keep looking to God to discern the truth. And and that can be hard because there's, there's so many different ways that people see truth. What's just for one person seems very unjust for another person. So how do we as people who follow Jesus, how do we come down on the idea of justice? And how do we not cloud that with our own ideas and our own perceptions when really we don't know everything that God knows? And and so our ways are not his ways. And so I think to continue to just bring awareness and to give people the benefit of the doubt and to say, maybe you're right. Maybe I don't get this. Can I maybe talk to you some more about what your feelings are about this? Because for me, I think this, but then how do you think about it? And what are your, you know, concerns? And so I think our political system has completely broken down where we can't even do that. I mean, there's no public square for any type of conversation about what is justice for immigrants. And so right now, I think for us as a church, you know, I take a lot of leadership from Pastor Rich who says left foot, right foot, that's sort of our motto is we do what we can, you know, if there's one little thing we can do here, then let's do that. And and let's put that little corner in place. And then maybe as we understand the issue better, and as we get more momentum on how do we do this in a holistic way, because we're not just trying to win a fight. We're trying to really reconcile the issues. And how do we do that when there's so many different types of, you know, cultures and people who have these different ideas of what the national identity should be, what the national religion should be, if there is a national religion. And so how do we address these issues in a way that honors everybody involved in this conversation instead of just fighting for our own corner of it and saying, we're right, you know, this is what it should be. You don't have any good points about this at all because you don't read the Bible correctly. I mean, you can't, I, I, I think that's the hardest thing in the church is like the interpretation of Romans 13 and how to do that in a way that would make sense so that we aren't being so, like I said, literal and in, in terms of like how to make it more of a holistic, not even thinking about laws, but thinking about like human beings. What I go back to a lot of times is this idea of for the purpose of looking at immigrants. I feel like what what's happening in this country on this conversation is we're talking about immigrants as the commodities. Like they're, what can they bring to our country? And I call, I, I think I borrowed this from um, a pastor. He, he talked at Wheaton, I forget his name, but 
he calls it contributionism, which is the idea that immigrants are only valuable if they contribute to society. Like, what do you bring? What's your value added? And I, I think we really have to fight against that. I think they are valued because they're human beings bearing the image of God. And that's their value. But now the conversation is about like, well, can, well, we get so-and-so, you know, uh, GDP if we bring these many immigrants in and then these many immigrants are taking our taxes and our benefits and these, you know, and so it's like, it becomes a money question and not a, a, a question of human beings who are loved by God and who are here because for some reason, God has called us to like look at them. And I think that's the idea of the proximity. Like if they're here, then we need to see them. We can't just say there are these abstractions, you know, like I think in the Bible, it talks about like the trees and like, oh, I see them. They're trees and they're actually people or something. And I feel like that's what I see a lot of people doing is like seeing this as an issue and not there are people that have families that go to school, that have jobs that need to eat and that need all kinds of like health care. And one of the hardest things for me is seeing it when people come and they actually have like medical hardship where if I don't get them status, they're going to die. And I think that's like the intersection of like the legal, yeah, the legal and the medical, financial, I mean, all of the, whatever you would think of as being like the hardest things to deal with and they, they have them all at once. And so I feel like that it, for me, it's a call to not think of status at all. And that these are people that need my help. And so that's how we view it in our churches, that we always think about welcoming the stranger in our midst, but that we actually, who are we? Like, I feel like they're probably stronger than I am in, in, in many ways because they've, you know, gone through so much more than I feel like I have ever gone through. They're really a testimony and a, a testament to the love of God for me. And so I, I've always thought it was the, out, the opposite, where even though I feel like my title is to minister to someone else, but they're actually ministering to me as well, and maybe even more so. Like, for me, the, the question is the holistic, like, ministry. Like, how to see it as not a legal ministry even, but it is like one part of it is legal, but really, how do you see the whole person? And that's how we, we would, I think, um, describe the ministry is that it's, it's legal services. However, we pray with people, we refer them to food pantry, we refer them to value life for, you know, pregnancy support, we, we refer them to counseling, we help them as much as we can financially, we have, you know, funding if they qualify. I mean, there's all these different components that make a person have hope and feel stable. And so we try to like, as much as possible, you know, within the capacity that we have with the volunteers that we have to, to kind of come alongside and, and just be their friend. And so that's sort of the motto of the Vineyard Community Center is to be the best friend that our community has ever known. I think it's, I think it's really striking that here we are having a conversation about, you know, immigration uh, counseling services, you're an immigration lawyer, and it certainly makes me think about the scales of justice and, you mm -hmm. know, is this really big, big word. Mm -hmm. But what you're highlighting is uh, even in trying to think theologically or pastorally or politically about immigration in the United States, mm -hmm. or 
or what would immigration reform be like? The big rock, the basic building block that you understand yourself to be called to and then your church is this basic building block of compassion mm -hmm. and loving, loving the stranger, loving the foreigner. Like you have a clarity about, all right, what's the first thing? And then there's all these other things that you have to sort out, but that, that, that sounds very freeing to me. And even for you and your professional and ministry role of, you know, director and lawyer, there's this, you, you cannot get away from that getting proximate to individuals and their stories. And, and you use the word honor. And I, I find that, yeah, I'd love to just hear more about that because I'm even putting together, what does it mean um, to invite others in your community? And then um, what would it look like for other churches to, to be invited and challenged to considering how do we holistically honor all people in our community and particularly, like that's also interesting, particularly those who would be labeled or considered strangers and foreigners and immigrants mm -hmm. in our communities. And so I believe that most, you know, many churches have shared this same value of like compassion, right? Like as, mm -hmm. as people beloved and chosen by God, we have a responsibility to express that, that love and compassion to others. So there's that kind of general thought, but a lot of churches, particularly churches that are located in like suburban areas, may not even realize or think that they have any proximity Mm -hmm. to people who are struggling with immigration issues. What could you offer in terms of how how might a suburban pastor or just a Christian, you know, who, who doesn't necessarily think of their lives as intersecting much, like how would I ever get proximate mm -hmm. you know, to someone who's seeking um, legal immigration status? Some of the particular issues I'm aware of, like what about people who are seeking refugee status or asylum status? We, we mentioned DACA status as well. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Right. So um, one of the good things about this whole, like if there was a good thing at all, is that there is so much out there right now in the news almost daily on this issue. And so if, if someone were to say, oh, I don't have any proximity to immigration or immigrants, everyone should have some connection right now to immigration. It's, it's all over the news. So one of the things that I think is really key and maybe like a, a Kairos moment almost is that it, it, there is this momentum. I mean, we, we, there's, a, there's a great series in the New York Times called Crossing the Border that I think is like a weekly feature about like the experience of someone who is coming through the Southern border. I mean, there's, um, I just saw this great documentary called 9500 Liberty from 2007, but it talks about very much, it's like a play-by-play -play of this political fight in Northern Virginia about these, uh, this community in Prince William County that is trying to basically give millions of dollars to the police department to rid the whole county of illegal immigrants. And there was this fight in the community over this because there were obviously so many people affected by this. And so I learned so much just by watching that. I mean, there's so much available for free on YouTube. There's there's this one that I love. It's a 2018 documentary called Out of Many One on Netflix. 
and it's about the naturalization process and the process for people to become a citizen. And there's all of this wonderful rhetoric about our country and how do we form a more perfect union? What is the ideals behind and the history behind why our system is set up the way it is? And why do you have to pass a citizenship test? How do you prove that you are really committed to America? And so there are so many things out there that a person can get educate themselves, but but really, I think at the heart of the matter is, do they care? If you have, you know, even the knowledge of it, and they're not even in your community, but the these stories are being told on the news and in the newspapers, but there's no sense that you should do anything about it, and you kind of are indifferent to it, then I think that's more of a heart issue. But if someone really does care, then I think that the next step would be to really be vocal about it. I think you have to speak up. Like, I think that's one of the things that's hard for me at first is that there's always going to be a cacophony of voices that are fighting to be heard over, you know, everyone else about what are the needs of this group or that group or this population or that population that is suffering. And so I think if you really have a heart for refugees or immigrants, then you yourself have to express it because I think that's what God is calling you and, and, and expecting of you. To, to add your voice to the conversation. And I think that a lot of times people get so intimidated and just this whole, this whole area is so technical that like I talked, I actually reached out to one of these churches in our community and I said, you know, I have this immigration services ministry. I would love to work with your church about it. And the pastor said, well, it's kind of technical, isn't it? And it was, I could see the intimidation just from the start. And so I almost feel like there's this, gap and this burden that has to be overcome first, that it's okay. Like there is enough expertise in the church community, in Vineyard, and in the wider Christian community, that it doesn't have to be so challenging to the point where we wouldn't be able to do anything. And I think that's the interesting thing about this ministry is that people are very, they don't understand it. It's very mysterious, this idea that you could have immigration <laughs> services within a church. I think it's a very unique kind of ministry. I, I know in the Catholic world, they have nonprofits like clinic who they're outside of the Catholic church, but they're very much affiliated with Catholicism and the church, but they don't, I don't think anything's ever inside the church itself. And so I think a lot of people need to know that like, it's just like any other ministry. And the funny thing is, my supervisor was saying, you know, Janine, you have kind of a complex type of ministry. It's not like the welcome ministry, but I'm like, it is the welcome ministry. It's just that with a little more red tape, right? Like I'm not reading people at the door, but I am kind of welcoming them into a relationship where, whereby we can get to know each other and maybe I can help them figure out if they are eligible for legal status. And I think that that's, to, that's sort of like the, the the first hurdle to overcome is that idea that it's it's possible. It's it's doable to welcome immigrants beyond just shaking their hand and saying hello. You can do more if you know how to and if you are committed to just learning. And and one of the things I was thinking is like just how about a citizenship class? You know, I mean it's not hard to teach about citizenship. Like we have that in our community center. And we have um, like a, a six-week program and people can, who are eligible to naturalize, they can enroll and they can learn about civics, history, um, you know, th they have to pass the English exam. So, you know, ESL is, is combined with that as well. But like, 
specifically learning about what is this country founded on? What are the principles? And, and there's a hundred questions that you have to know for the citizenship test. So that's a great way to, I think, onboard someone as a ministry within a Christian church that is not so intimidating that it has to be like a legal service mm-hmm. ministry, that citizenship is really just teaching someone how to be a good citizen. And I think that would be a great first step to opening your church up to the idea that people of all nationalities, of all origins are welcome because that's the kingdom of God. I mean, that's, God says that all nations will worship together. And so, I mean, that's the fulfillment of the Bible. So why, why wouldn't we want all nations in one place? I'm really appreciating the ways that you've kind of really offered lots of entryways. So you're in a church that is, let's say you're 99% mono-ethnic white and everyone is already an American citizen and there is nowhere an immigrant or recent immigrant to be found within three hour radius. <laughs> well, you can, uh, check out like one of these like recommended documentaries or this New York Times column crossing the border. Um, I hadn't heard of that before. I'm, I'm totally going to check that out, mm-hmm. you know, but then, you know, if you're, if you're in a, in a church setting where, you know, even in the suburbs, but last time I checked, you know, suburbs are actually incredibly diverse mm-hmm. these days. And if, and if you are already sensing a, a desire to lean outward towards the diversity that is already present in your larger community. Like what are some of those first steps? I love this possibility of a a citizenship class, learning about the assets that that may already be in your church. There may already be immigration lawyers who are waiting to be asked (laughs) to connect their existing profession with serving in a kingdom way. Now, I'd love, I'd love for you to just share a story, you know, even from the last few weeks, or what's the kind of situation or a, a case that you would be able to share with us about, yeah, what, what's the day in the life of Janine in terms of <laughs> offering your, your gifts? Wow, okay. One of the things right now, the ministry is really taking off in the area of asylum and working with people who basically, like, if you think about it, we don't know a lot about the countries that people are fleeing from. And one of the wonderful things that this ministry does is it, it kind of like puts everyone in one place. And so we have lawyers that volunteer for me. We have interpreters who come from our Lavinia campus, our Spanish-speaking campus, who come and volunteer with us. And then we have the clients themselves. And wouldn't you know it, one of our volunteers is actually applying for asylum. We have a a situation where the volunteer is a lawyer from the other country that he's applying for asylum for. And that's an amazing thing where it's like all of us are working together to figure out how does this lawyer from this other country who's fleeing persecution because of corruption and because he was a prosecutor in that country and he's volunteering for me, but I'm actually now kind of helping him figure out how to get through our asylum laws. And so it's this kind of neat, very, I find to be holistic, where we're all just one big family trying very hard to figure this system out and to honor each other with the resources we have, the skill sets, and with the love of Christ. You know, with the mediation of Christ, anything can happen. I think that the first step that I think that most people don't get is that you have to overcome 
your fear of the other. Like you can't just say, oh, I don't know anything about your country. I don't know anything about you. I really think that this is not a good situation because this is way over my head and I can't even communicate with you because I can't even understand half the words you say. Well, this lawyer who has been volunteering for us for the last six months, he came in with very much limited English. And now I understand him completely because he's learned over the course of all the clinics we've done together. And he is like basically trying to learn asylum law on his own. And so right now, because he's a member of our church, we have an immigrant defense fund that is actually going to help fund his case so that we can actually bring it before an immigration court and fight it out. And we'll have all the financial resources because of the generosity of our church community. So I feel like that is sort of like, not a day in the life, but one of those really unique stories about what I do that just blows my mind. I can't even imagine like, you know, he, he must be so smart because he's like, I'm this immigration lawyer. He was like prosecuting gangs and, and the mafia in his country, you know? And so now I really have a respect for the people who come through just because of that experience. It made me think that God brings these far neighbors near so that we can understand his plan, God's plan for humanity. We shouldn't jump to the conclusion that, that we are not part of that plan, but somehow we have to like keep people outside our country, that we we have a duty to follow laws and the laws say that they're not allowed in. How do we know that? How do we know really what God's plan is and what God's will is? Can we maybe have the, the mind of, you know, seek the mind of Christ and think maybe there's a bigger plan than just what we have on our law books? And, and that's a question of justice. And that's a much bigger theological question. And I think that like for me, it's, it's every day I just try to discern what is the Holy Spirit asking me to do today? And I'm not trying to like, you know, extrapolate like the next selection or anything like that. I just want to know who has God brought me to work with today and how do I serve that person uh, as, as well as I can? And then how can I learn from that person as well? You're really highlighting how in order to do this work that honors and demonstrates mutual respect, you're really needing to lay down a lot of assumptions about why this person might be here, why this person is having this immigration issue. Um, just because you can't understand them doesn't necessarily mean that they are inept or poorly mm -hmm. educated or, you know, any of the things that we may wrestle with, which is actually very natural when it comes to coming into contact or even imagining coming into contact with the unfamiliar, you've really done some of that work to, to press that pause button <laughs> so that you can in, really encounter someone as, as God offering that person to you as a, as a gift. Mm -hmm. So is that on a very practical level, like with, with the folks who want to volunteer or serve with you in the clinic, do you do training with them in order to press mm -hmm. that same pause button? I do train. It's very limited because of the time that we have, but I, I would have to say that I just train by example. So when someone sees me being very comfortable with someone else and that person is speaking another language and has different social norms and I'm very comfortable with it and I just am not at all put off by it. I think that sets a culture, doesn't it, of acceptance, treating the other with dignity and respect and a culture of giving people the benefit of the doubt. Like maybe 
maybe it is hard, but hey, I'm not the one who's fleeing persecution here. Like maybe it is hard for them to communicate and maybe they haven't mastered the English language. I almost take joy and like I relish <laughs> trying to understand someone through their body language and their gestures because we're all human beings and we're all trying to communicate and I am not at all thinking, oh, this is too hard. I, I think, wow, what can I do to, to communicate more and, and so that I can help them to communicate back? So it's like this dyad of trying to figure out like, so oftentimes I think it's eye contact. Like the, you can see someone's eyes, you know, like the window to their soul. And I remember this person came up to me and he said, I can see you. Even though I know it's hard to really communicate with language, but we see each other. We see that we're doing this thing together and we get it. And I think that it, it's a transcends language. So I think for me, like modeling that with volunteers who maybe have never done something like this before. And just the more that I show that I am fine with the, the differences and the just like maybe culturally different ways of doing things. Like for example, <laughs> Sometimes immigrants can be pretty pushy, right? Like they they want something, <laughs> and 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 so I I understand that, and maybe it's my it's my upbringing because I I am an immigrant, and so I think part of God's equipment of me is that He's already given me pretty much those skills because I had to navigate many sort of these types of culturally different and and divergent scenarios through my, throughout my life. And how to negotiate that in a way that is kind of forgiving and has grace. And I think that for me, I I almost do it out of like a need to accommodate others. And maybe that's part of my personality too. But I think God does redeem that for good. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, you know, sometimes I have to be firm and I have to say no. And, and it's hard, but I do have boundaries too, of course. What's your clearest thought these days as you think about the like our public square landscape as having almost no room for real conversation when it comes to immigration. It seems like people have their own opinion and they're sticking to it. And however they came to that opinion, whether they're Christian or not Christian, it almost maybe doesn't seem to make that much of a difference. For, for you as a Christian, mm -hmm. um, what's your clearest thought or conviction when it comes to the, the immigration issue in, in uh -huh. the US? That's something like, if you could have a conversation, like what would you want to say that seems like almost impossible to say? So far, my clearest conviction about this is that people who already have relationship with each other need to speak their minds and stand up for what they believe in. I think there's a lot of fear, especially like with children and their parents. There's a lot of fear of like antagonizing or stepping on toes or not respecting. And it's hard. It's really hard because and on the one hand, you have this really good relationship. And then on the other hand, there's this awfully controversial topic and nobody would want to talk about it. So why would you ever go there? And so I think if I could change one thing, it would be wanting more people to just step up and do the hard thing and speak to their own family members, friends who have very hard set like views and, and, and try to persuade. Our senior pastor says it, you, everything that we do in Christ has to be civil. It has to be to persuade and not to coerce. And so I think in our public square right now, it's constantly people just like 
a drag out fight to win a, an argument, but I don't think that's the answer. It's not winning, it's persuasion, it's using uh, stories, using your own experiences, using your personal conviction, what you believe God has, has laid on your heart, and really speaking to the issue in a sincere way to someone you're close to. I don't think this is going to be won at the political level. I think it's going to be won at, not won in the sense of, but like God's justice will not come to pass through politics. It's going to be through relationships that are already like established. It's not through strangers on Facebook. It's not through Twitter feeds. It's through people talking to each other at, on the phone with their family members or friends at the dinner table in, in just one-on-one -on -one conversation. I think that that's the only way you can change personal opinion, which then changes public opinion. And I really think that's the hard thing because no one wants to broach a topic that is this hard and affects people that maybe they, they, they're they indifferent to. And I think the people who should not have indifference is are people who actually have family members or friends who are immigrants. And yeah. I think that's where I find that a lot of people are kind of like not, there's not enough courage to yeah. speak. And I, I understand that, I mean, I think not everyone feels the need to change things and reform and not everyone is that type of person, but, yeah. but sometimes you have to speak up. And I think that's required in, in really like certain times in society where there is this, this, this threat strife to the point where there is like a complete break in civility and in the way forward. How do you have a civil society that is not civil, right? I, there has to be conversation and dialogue and that starts at home. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we have to pick up the mantle as Christians and and do what we believe, you know, and, and I think it has to be personal conviction. I think it has to be like not some something we do out of like, you know, virtue signaling, like wanting to look like we're doing something. It has to be like you are doing it because this is the right thing to do. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I hear some of just even your own personal story coming through again in imagining uh, this hope and prayer that you have for, for others, you know, with, with, what, with what you experience, even with your family being separated for a time and just the incredibly confusing political and military decisions that were made mm -hmm. that contributed to Vietnam being what it was and Vietnam being what it is today. I can just hear the, the hope for, oh, could the U.S., learn from history and could your story and your experience of history have um could god use that hmm. you know to to change conversations today and i'm gonna say amen <laughs> yeah absolutely as we wrap up is there even relate to that is there is there a particular you hope that you have as you even think about your, your work today that you would hope to see on a bigger scale um, mm -hmm. with the church in the U.S. or even with vineyard churches across the U.S.? Well, I am speaking with the head of Vineyard Justice Network. And so I feel that, you know, maybe this is a moment where there can be something that more that can be done because I, I do think that Vineyard is very unique, especially I feel 
that we really know how to do diversity and we know how to do multiculturalism at Vineyard Columbus and I think also throughout the Vineyard movement. I think that that is already like setting the stage and the environment for something that can be done on a much bigger scale in the sense of leading churches in how to address immigrant justice, but also just overall justice, right? I think justice between people, between tribes, between nations. And so I think if there was any hope or prayer that I feel in my heart, it would be that Vineyard would take the lead on advancing the cause of of the, the oppressed. God is always on the side of the oppressed. I think I'm not a theologian, but I do believe that God is never on the side of the oppressor. And so if there is a way to promote justice through the vineyard community and the the network of churches, like how do we work together to lead and and, and to follow Jesus? Because he's the leader of all this. And so what is his vision and how do we align with the vision and the will Jesus Christ, to lift up and to liberate the oppressed. And I think that would be my prayer for our, you know, our church family. Well, I, I will, I will second and echo your, your prayers for, for our movement. When I think about the ways it is rooted in John and Carol Wimber's legacy Mm -hmm. of even imagining the vineyard person, like one leg is compassion. Mm -hmm. The other leg is worship. And worship being a public expression mm-hmm. of your allegiance. Mm-hmm. And what a what a great prayer it is that our family of churches could lead the way in our public expression of worship, mm-hmm. including tangible acts of mm-hmm. leaning towards the foreigner or the stranger. Mm-hmm and the immigrant to to such an extent that our holistic honoring and welcome actually erases that status of stranger and foreigner because that's what Jesus does for us he he removes the the boundary of stranger and foreigner between us and him so i think you i um you may not be a theologian but i would say you uh, you see, you seem to have distilled that just uh, that truth about what it means to be saved and what does it mean to be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and into God's kingdom. It, it does create a different family. And I, I see how this particular issue of immigration brings it all to the surface and forces us to to look much more critically than we may be comfortable with, with our own status as, mm-hmm. <laughs> as strangers in the land because we're, we are called to be citizens in God's kingdom. And that, that is an uncomfortable reckoning that um, not, not all of us necessarily feel prepared to do. So just God, God bless you, Denise. God, God bless uh the work that you do and, and all, all of your team that are around you. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing your story today. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you for just talking to me. It was so nice to meet you. Thanks so much for listening. Um, we will list some resources, including those recommendations that Janine made on the blog post to this podcast. And I want to invite 
everyone who's listening to our upcoming Vineyard Justice Network Forum that is happening in Philly this November 14th to 16th. And our theme is so connected to what Janine was talking about. How do we get proximate to the people who are most affected by some of these hot button issues of our time? And what might God have to say to us as we get present to to people and their communities? For resources related to this episode, as well as to listen to previous podcast episodes, go to www.vineyardjusticenetwork.org. Follow us on Facebook at Vineyard Justice Network and on Twitter and Instagram at Vineyard Justice.